You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe. And I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that will teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, The Recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that'll up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, and guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, price and coverage match limited by state law. We also have support from Indeed. Instead of spending weeks searching for talent, Indeed matches you with quality candidates that fit your job description. Plus, you can connect with candidates faster by scheduling interviews, screening, and messaging them all in one platform. To try it out, listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com diaries. Just go to indeed.com diaries right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Radiotopia. From PRX. From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. Guys, if you ever need the restrooms in Tompkins Square Park, between the girls' room and the boys' room is a memorial dedicated to the victims of the Slocum disaster in 1904. That's Robin London, a New York City tour guide showing a group of tourists from Louisiana around the East Village. We're in Tompkinsore Park right now, standing in front of a six-foot pillar. And etched into the marble are these words, dedicated to the victims of the steamship General Slocum. It says it right here on the side, and there's a lion that's pouring out water to remind you how they drowned. Close to 1,100 people were killed that day. That was the worst disaster in New York history until 9-11. People don't know about this memorial. Okay. It's true. People don't know about this memorial. And not just tourists from Louisiana. This is actually my neighborhood. And for years, I walked through this park almost every day before I ever really noticed it, before I ever knew the story behind it. On June 15, 1904, a steamship called the General Slocum left the pier on East 3rd Street just after 9 a.m., the boat was filled with more than 1,300 residents of the Lower East Side. Many of the passengers were recent German immigrants who were headed up the East River for a church outing, a boat cruise, and a picnic on Long Island. But they would never make it. Back in 2004, I interviewed the last living survivor of the General Slocum. Today in the Radio Diaries podcast, we're bringing you her story as part of our series, Last Witness. My name is Adela Watherspoon. I was born November 28th. 1903. I'm 100 years old, and I'm the last survivor of the General Slocum disaster. I'm Edward T. O'Donnell. I'm a historian and the author of Ship Ablaze, 
the tragedy of the steamboat General Slocum. The General Slocum was an enormous boat, 300 feet long, four stories tall, with these great big yellow smokestacks uh, right in the center of the ship, and uh, gleaming white paint on the hull, which had just been repainted. It was a supposedly a very good boat and a very handsome boat. June 15, 1904 was an exceptionally beautiful day. You've got people all along the railing of the ship, dressed in their very Sunday best, waving goodbye to people on the pier. And then as the wheels begin to turn, the boat begins to move forward, the band that they've hired to come on board the ship uh, begins to strike up and play. The boat headed up the East River at the astonishing clip of 15 knots. They began literally to see the city in front of them. 14th Street to 23rd Street to 34th Street to 42nd Street to 59th Street. Many of those people on board the boat had never been on the boat before. It was mostly women and children. Of course, it was on a work day. My father and my uncle took the time off. You have to remember I was only six months old. So what do you remember at six months? <laughs> Thirty years after the fire, in 1934, a Hollywood film, Manhattan Melodrama, which starred Clark Gable and William Powell, staged a quite stunning reenactment of the General Slocum disaster. Come on, Jim. Okay. It's about 15 or 20 minutes into the journey, up the East River, somewhere just off the tip of what's now Roosevelt Island, that one of the mates was sitting at the bar having a mid-morning beer when a young boy came up to him and said, Mister, there's smoke coming up the stairs. And then seconds later, the flames began pouring up through the center of the ship. Most of these people are parents, and they're rushing around trying to find their children who they felt perfectly safe letting wander the ship. So these people had no idea where their children were, and a this sort of simultaneous recognition as the fire became evident among hundreds and hundreds of parents was, where are the children? It spread faster than you could have possibly imagined. This boat was a floating Duraflame log. Within three minutes, the entire boat was on fire. And in 1904, very few people know how to swim. And so these are people who have 10 seconds to make up their minds whether they'd rather stay and most likely be burned to death or jump over the boat into the river. And the, you know, the, the water was almost as frightening as the fire. There were 2,500 life preservers on board the boat for 1,300 passengers. So on the surface, that looked adequate. The problem was that the owner of the steamship, the Knickerbocker Steamship Company, had built the ship in 1891, outfitted it with life preservers, and never replaced the life preservers. None of those were in good repair. And the stuffing, the cork stuffing, was all crumbled. They didn't work. What had once been solid chunks of cork had now become just fine dust. So people were putting them on, around their necks, jumping overboard, as soon as these things hit the water, they absorbed water, and it was like having 25 pounds of dirt around your neck and pulled people right underwater. 
they put the children in the life preservers and threw them overboard and they sank. I guess they found many dead children with life preservers on. Adela Weatherspoon does not know precisely how she was saved. I have no idea. I always thought, though my mother never said this, that she was so badly burned on her left side, I assumed that she held on to the railing as long as she could before she dropped into the water. I, and I thought because her right arm seemed to be all right that she'd help me in her right arm. And whatever she was able to do in the water, she did, and she got me near enough to the shore so they pulled us out. Of my two sisters, Helen was never found, and Anna was found uh, with her, still had her clothes on and so on. I had a feeling she was thrown in the water and drowned. Helen was six and Anna was three, and I was six months. They knew a lot of people had died. They knew a couple hundred people had died as this was unfolding. But within about an hour or two after the fire, as they began to pull out the bodies out of the water, they just, at about 200 bodies, they, that was all they found. And so there was this moment in the middle of the afternoon where people said maybe, you know, the talk of hundreds and hundreds of dying, maybe that was just an exaggeration. But then when the tide turned in the middle of the afternoon, just shortly after that, um, submerged bodies began to appear and they were pulling them out, you know, several a minute. And it was clear from that point on that hundreds, maybe 500, maybe 600, but the next day, maybe 1,000 had died. Louisa Hartung, wife, age 47, occupation, tailoress, killed in disaster. Frances Hartung, daughter, age 18, occupation, piano teacher, killed in disaster. Elsie Hartung, daughter, age 6, killed in disaster. Clara Fitch, wife, There was no reason for this locum happening. Minnie Fitch, daughter. The life preservers, had they been inspected and had the life rafts been put on the ceilings so that they could be brought down, you know, by people that wanted to use them, there was no need for the amount of destruction and the amount of loss of life. In the end, only the captain was convicted and sent to jail. He was sent to jail for 10 years, served only three of those years before receiving a pardon. The directors and officers of the Knickerbocker Steamboat Company that owned the General Slocum and was clearly responsible for those rotten life jackets and rotten fire hoses, none of them were brought to trial. Charges were all subsequently dropped, so they walked completely free, washed their hands of it. In fact, they dissolved the Knickerbocker Steamboat Company and uh, ended up paying no damages to anybody because the corporation ceased to exist. After the Slocum, so many of the children had died that the place was so quiet, that 13th Street area, that most of the families moved uptown. Each one of those apartments or houses or whatever they had in those days held so many memories for them, they just couldn't stand it. My mother, she never talked about it. And I never asked her. I think I was just very lucky that I got out of it in one piece. <laughs> to have lived a hundred years, 
doesn't seem like a long time to me. In 1904, I was the youngest survivor of the General Slocum, and now at 100, I'm the oldest survivor of the General Slocum. That was Adela Wotherspoon. She died a few months after I interviewed her at the age of 100. Thanks to Edward T. O'Donnell, who's a historian and the author of Ship Ablaze, and Teal Kreck, who helped produce this story. To see photos of the General Slocum, go to our website, radiodiaries.org. You'll hear more stories from our Last Witness series in the coming months. If you have an idea for someone who might make a good Last Witness, you can email us at info at radiodiaries.org. We have another story for you coming up, but first, a message from our sponsor. The Radio Diaries podcast has support from Bombas, a sock company on a mission to make the most comfortable socks ever. By the way, the word Bombas is derived from the Latin word for bumblebee. Bees are altruistic animals. They're all about the whole hive working together to make things better. So the company's mantra is, be better. With every pair of socks you buy, Bombas will donate a pair of socks to someone in need. They've already donated more than 7 million pairs to homeless shelters around the country. You can save 20% by visiting bombas.com slash diaries. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash diaries and entering the code diaries at checkout. You're listening to Radio Diaries, and today we're bringing you stories from our new series, Last Witness. Frank Schubert was the last civilian lighthouse keeper in the United States. He'd been a lighthouse keeper since 1939. When I met him, he was 85, had been stationed at the lighthouse near Coney Island for more than four decades. Most of that time, he lived there with his wife and three children. But for the last few years of his life, he was alone, except for the company of his dog and whoever came knocking, as I did. He rarely left the lighthouse, except to go bowling once a week. When Schubert walked up the 87 steps to the top of the lighthouse, he had one of the best views in the world. The Manhattan skyline to the right, wide-open Atlantic Ocean to the left, and his job was basically you know, to save lives. To some people, it sounds like the most romantic job in the world. Frank Schubert was not one of those people. Well, my name is Frank Schubert. I'm 85 years old. We're situated on what they call Norton's Point. It's a jut of land that's going out into the uh, lower bay. When you look out, you got the Atlantic Ocean on your left. Straight ahead is New Jersey. To your right is New York. You can look out the front door and see for 15 miles. Right now, I'm the last civilian lighthouse keeper left in the United States. And I think they keep me around because of public relations, that's it. Because we do get a lot of visitors. Visitors, visitors, visitors. It drives me crazy. I've had people come out here and want to spend weekends out here. They want to pay me to put them up. They wanted to spend weekends just hanging around a lighthouse. I don't know why they like lighthouses. When was the last time you were on a lighthouse? To you, it's romantic. But when you see it every day, day after day, it's not romantic anymore. Get out of the way, buttonhead. Come on, move. Years ago, you didn't have that many visitors. At that time, we had uh, the old lighting system, not the electricity. 
It was all kerosene. And when you lit it, if you didn't have smoke glasses on, that flash, as soon as you lit it with a match, you couldn't see for 20 minutes. But outside of keeping the light operating, keeping it clean, maintaining it, the only thing you could do was fish. That's why I don't bother fishing here anymore. I was up to my neck in fishing. See this boat out here? That's the tanker coming in. Everything comes in and out of the harbor has got to go by the front door. But most of the shore stations have either been sold or closed up. You don't need this light anymore. People can say to me, why don't you retire? Well, you go out the front door, you've got to go approximately 40 feet to get to the tower. Once you get to the tower, there's 80-some-odd steps to get up to the top of the tower. And that's your commute. So would you retire? I got one son living out in Albuquerque. He wants me to go out there. How much water do you see out in Albuquerque? It feels like you're all bottled in. Right here, you can sit on the front porch and take a look for 15 miles and see water. No, if I ever leave here, I'd probably have to live someplace close to water. I got to like it. Frank Schubert died at his lighthouse in 2003, a few years after I interviewed him. He was 88. His story was produced with help from Emily Botine and Ben Shapiro. Radio Diaries is produced by me, Joe Richmond, Sarah Kate Kramer, and Nellie Gillis. Our editors are Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. We're proud members of Radiotopia from PRX, and we have support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the NEA, NISCA, and listeners like you. I'm Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries. Thanks for listening. Radio Tokyo from P.